1: This week on Global Reboot, the U.S.-China relationship. How the Biden administration steers relations between Washington and Beijing could have more impact on the rest of the world than just about any other American policy in the coming years. It is the one country in the world that has the military, economic, diplomatic capacity to undermine or challenge the rules-based order that we, uh, we care so much about and are determined uh, to defend. That was U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken interviewed on the CBS show 60 Minutes last month. His remarks help frame much of our conversation on the show today. You say
0: the goal is not to contain China, but have you ever seen China be so assertive or aggressive militarily?
1: No, we haven't. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. I'm joined today by Kevin Rudd, He's a former Prime Minister of Australia who now serves as the President and CEO of the Asia Society. Rudd is also a fluent Mandarin speaker and one of the world's preeminent China scholars. We began our conversation by talking about the growing consensus in Washington that China is now a threat to the United States, both economically and strategically. And yet it's important not to overestimate that threat the way the United States did occasionally during the Cold War with the Soviet Union, which of course led to a nuclear arms race and to unnecessary wars around the world.
0: American strategic predominance in East Asia and the West Pacific is under direct Chinese strategic challenge, and that is articulated primarily through the presence And expanding presence of Chinese military assets in all categories in that theater. Beyond the East Asian, West Pacific area, there is a global challenge to the United States in terms of America's global economic dominance. Of course, China became the world's largest trading power some time ago. Sooner or later, China will become probably the world's largest source of foreign direct investment around the world. Then there looms the question of what will be the relative Chinese slice of global capital markets vis a vis the American slice. And beyond that, again, we have unfolding, as it were, a Chinese challenge to the long term supremacy of the United States dollar. That is, I think, the second big challenge. And the third I would put along these lines it is a Chinese challenge to the preponderance of universal values and norms associated with, let's call, the post-World War II global settlement and China's ideological challenge to those universal concepts of democracy, freedom, and human rights, with a Chinese set of values which are of a different calibre, a different quality, and a different content, emanating from China's traditional approach to such questions, compounded by the Marxist-Leninist culture which underpins the Chinese Communist Party in power. So in aggregate, I think there is a regional strategic challenge, there is a global economic challenge, including technology, and there is a global ideational challenge as well.
1: I briefly mentioned the Soviet Union as one way that some Americans sometimes compare China too, in terms of it being a US competitor. There's also the Japan comparison, you know, and all the economic accusations that today Americans seem to level against China, that it has unfair trade practices or unfairly favors domestic firms. All of those accusations were also once leveled against Japan in the 1980s. And then Japan's economy sort of fizzled out. But we can't say the same about China, can we?
0: The Soviet Union did not represent a fundamental challenge to American global economic power. It represented a different economic system. And there was a debate at some stage about the actual size of the Soviet economy relative to the United States. But in the projection of global economic influence across all the dimensions of economic power, frankly, it did not exist. On the ideational question, yes, there was a contest of ideas between Soviet Marxist-Leninism and its concept of development and its concept of uh, political dictatorship versus the American worldview. And that was sharp as well. But the big difference between the Soviet challenge and the Chinese challenge is the Chinese challenge is robust in all departments. And as for the Japan analogy, Japan post-war never represented a strategic challenge to the American strategic domination of East Asia and the West Pacific.
1: So I want to get to how best the United States should engage China as a competitor. Before we get there, I'm curious about your personal assessment of China's leaders and how they see the world. You've sat across the table from the Chinese for decades now and China's changed a lot in that time. Its economy is now five times as large as it was 20 years ago. It's the largest engine of global growth. It's the, as you pointed out, the largest destination for foreign investment, biggest trading nation in the world. How do all of these factors change what it's like to sit across the table from the Chinese?
0: When I have encountered Xi Jinping personally over the years, this is a person with a profound sense of his country's own history, profound sense of the history of the Chinese Communist Party, profound sense of his moment in history leading the party now when China is on the threshold of becoming the world's largest economy and therefore is not a shrinking violet, uh, given the historical opportunities which he sees himself having been presented with. They do play the long game. And therefore, the analytical framework is to constantly see this slice of time in a much broader view of 100 years of party histories, 70 years of the People's Republic of China, and what they can achieve in the next 10 to 20 years. And that, if you like, is where they have a qualitative advantage over the countries of the collective West, which are driven by more short-term political cycles.
1: So let me push you on that then, if they have this longer-term plan and the luxury of being able to have longer-term plans, what do they want 20 years from now?
0: Well, China's hierarchy of priorities, in my judgment, is relatively clear. The Chinese Communist Party is not going to put out a statement which says, here are our 10 real global aspirations. They don't operate that way. (laughs) So what's my deduction? In a decade's time, they want the Communist Party to be in power and unchallenged domestically. That's number one. Number two, national unity. Uh, Whatever we see by way of crackdown in Xinjiang and Tibet at the moment, and in Hong Kong, will continue to intensify Human rights officials today blasted a new national security law in Hong Kong imposed two months ago by China. And with its now customary fire, Beijing shot back, telling the U.N. to, quote, stop meddling. And that leaves us with the open question of can they, by decades end, secure Taiwan's return, which is why I Mm -hmm. think we have a problem of monumental proportions looming on this question. Number three, to continue to grow the economy to enhance living standards for the Chinese people to sustain the social contract between party and people. To
1: overcome the coronavirus outbreak, China has signaled that the country is well on its way to full recovery. And the government's actions in recent months have set the stage for Chinese ambitions across the globe. At the
0: same time, to create the continued fundamentals of Chinese national power. But number four, environmental sustainability, because that's part of the new social contract, including on climate. Number five, now they want to push the Americans further east to the second and ultimately third victory. island chain.
1: Uh, for a foreign military airplane, you are brought in my military victory here. Please go away quickly in order to run department.
0: In order to accommodate their aspirations vis-à-vis the Taiwan, the South China Sea and the East China Sea.
1: I mean, United States military aircraft conducting lawful military activities outside national airspace.
0: On top of that, with the Belt and Road Initiative and China's continental periphery to its west, we would like the Belt and Road to turn the Eurasian landmass into a zone with influence uh, where China's um, uh, interests are attended to. I think finally, where China wishes to be militarily is to have, by decades' end, uh, the modernization of its military completed and to cause American military planners to conclude that within the East Asian theater it would be too expensive for the United States to contemplate any open military action against the uh, People's Liberation Army navy or air force
1: you know what you're describing seems so well thought through and not really aggressive and at least not in the sense that some in the west and even in parts of asia tend to see and it's easy to forget that technically China hasn't gone to war since, what, 1979. It hasn't funded armed insurgents anywhere in the world since the early 1980s. You can't say that about any other member of the UN Security Council.
0: China, in its deep strategic culture, does not have a big interest in, let's call it, formal colonial expansion along the lines of the European colonial powers from the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. That's, I think, the first point. I think the second is what China aspires to, however, in the rest of the world is creating zones of economic influence, of foreign policy influence, to the point that China's core national interests and values are no longer challenged by other individual states or global institutions like the United Nations or the Human Rights Council, for example, in Geneva. So for those who have a different worldview in terms of the centrality of, let's call it the liberal international rules-based order incrementally put together by the United States since 1944-45, if you're an architect of that order or a co-contributor to that order, then you will find the China challenge confronting indeed. But that's different from, as it were, in-your-face military confrontation outside China's immediate peripheral
1: areas. I want to ask you about the elephant in the room, and that's now former U.S. President Donald Trump. What, in your opinion, did his very bald zero-sum approach to China do to this relationship?
0: My own view is that the Chinese uh, would probably have preferred to see Trump's re-election. There's a reason for that. It's because Trump was such a giant wrecking ball at work around the world in eroding and corroding the pillars of American power in the world, becoming, for example, the champion of global protectionism.
1: China to rape
0: our country, and that's what they're doing. It's the great- President Trump escalating his trade war just moments ago, taking new aggressive action against China. The president furious at Beijing for today imposing tariffs on $75 billion of American goods. And this evening, he fired right back with another tariff hike of his own. He Against America's longstanding history of support for free trade. On top of that, a failure to embrace critical regional free trade agreements, such as the Trans-Pacific Partnership. ...during his campaign, he ended plans for a trade agreement involving 12 countries that sit on the Pacific Ocean. Great thing for the American worker, what we just did. On top of that, walking away from global human rights norms itself, in addition to that, but through its own domestic example of poor governance and the management of the pandemic... The Chinese virus... Sending shockwaves around the world in terms of perceptions of American credibility, prestige, and standing. And despite the fact that we, I, have done a phenomenal job with it, I saved hundreds of thousands of lives,
1: we don't ever get even a mention.
0: And on top of that, uh, Trump's predisposition to have a whole bunch of public disagreements with these principal traditional allies, both in Europe and in part in Asia as well. So if you were sitting back as a Chinese grand strategist, looking at the scorecard over the last four years, whatever happened in the machinery of the US-China bilateral relationship, the Chinese calculus is that Trump's wanton damage to American global standing and power was of such an order of magnitude that it was an on-balance win to China. As they sat back and just, as it were, ate popcorn and just watched this train wreck unfold. On the execution of the national security strategy of the United States by the Trump administration, it was chaotic in the extreme. It lurched from Trump's predisposition to regard Xi Jinping as his best buddy and friend, uh, cuddling up to Kim Jong-un as if he was the best thing since sliced bread, confusing everybody on the way through by doing so, by the way while at the same time unleashing a highly unsuccessful trade war, which only served to expand the US-China trade deficit in China's favour, quite apart from America's deficit with the rest of the world. So out of all of that, where does the US-China relationship stand four years on? Of course, infinitely more overtly adversarial than it was before. That is the truth. But on the execution front, frankly you'd have to give the Trump administration one out of 10 or two out of 10 on any Richter scale of let's call it foreign policy and national security policy performance.
1: Now, transitioning to the Biden era, it seems that the new administration is keeping some components of Trump's policies, the the aspects that, that have to do with playing tough with China.
0: In my discussion with President Xi, I told him, we welcome the competition. We're not looking for conflict, but I made absolutely clear that we will defend America's interest across the board.
1: But there's a greater recognition as well of the need to cooperate, especially on things like climate change. How does that work out, and how much do the Chinese care about climate change?
0: The Biden administration seems to be embracing an approach where the United States and China have a series of red lines which cannot be crossed, for example, on the question of Taiwan, but a cooperative dimension as well, which is what do we need to do to cooperate with China in order to produce better planetary outcomes on climate, better global outcomes on future pandemics, and frankly, better global economic outcomes on issues such as global debt management to ensure the stability of the global financial system. I think there's a predisposition, therefore, in the Biden administration, to walk and chew gum at the same time. We can have cooperation, we can have competition, and we can also have in-your-face red lines, which we will actively enforce in our dealings with Beijing. On climate, the final part of your question, Uh, the Chinese, not through any sentimentality towards the United States, the West or the rest, have undertaken their own U-turn on climate policy over the last decade. But it's because China has done its own domestic science on this. They've concluded it's in China's acute national interests to bring down their own greenhouse gas emissions, together with the world's other largest emitters, Europe, Japan, the United States, so that they don't have to face the extreme weather events of the future, which would directly affect their own stability. If you had the complete melting of the um, Himalayan region, the impact on the Chinese river system would just be profound beyond description. Chinese have done the numbers on all these things. And because there are a bunch of hard-nosed scientists have concluded uh, we need to act on this, otherwise it's going to impede our moment of, shall we say, uh, national glory in the global sun.
1: You know, you speak so eloquently and dispassionately as an observer of the US-China relationship I'm wondering if I can also get you to, for a moment, put on your Australian hat. And also if you could then putting on that hat, look at what it means for the regular people in other countries that are impacted by the US-China relationship, whether they can trust the United States. I mean, you spoke of the pivot to Asia, but in some senses that was unfulfilled and the Middle East has a way of always dragging the United States back in. And then ultimately, I wonder whether leaders in countries such as Australia, whether they wonder that, well, we'll have four years of Biden. And then after that, it might be another leader who takes us back to a Trumpian era of seeing the world. How do you navigate that?
0: The democracies of East Asia and the West Pacific and more broadly across the Indo-Pacific are ultimately driven not just by elite opinion, but by public opinion as well. What's fascinating, if you look at some of the annual survey work done by the Institute of Southeast Asian Studies in Singapore on regional perceptions, both of China and the United States, is that both these countries are, um, as it were, not getting the best reviews. (laughs) On question of regional perceptions of economic and strategic power, it's quite plain That public opinion across East Asia is concluding that China is already, by a country mile, the dominant economic power in East Asia, irrespective of what the numbers might say in individual categories of economic power. Secondly, you ask the same question of the same survey sample, uh, do you trust China? And you get numbers which are almost sub-5% in terms of regional perceptions of um, China's trustworthiness. This bifurcation of opinion, whereby, A, the region's concluding that China is already much more powerful than the United States against most matrices of power calculus, and B, however, we in Southeast Asia don't trust the Chinese. And so you have this feeding its way into not just the democracies of the region, but into broader elite sentiment as well. So navigating that underpinning reality is a challenge for each individual government in Southeast Asia. And not just there, but in Northeast Asia, Australasia, as well as South Asia as well.
1: How important is it then for Biden to correctly calibrate his approach to China? And what could go wrong?
0: I think the deep realist calculus by the smart folks in Washington is that for the first time in the post-1945 world, America actually needs its allies. And the reason is that the numbers vis-a-vis collective economic size collective economic footprint, and collective military capabilities only provide balance in relation to China if it's the United States plus its allies, not the United States unilaterally. And the third for the United States strategy towards China is that when the Chinese look at the United States, the beginning of their analysis is always the fundamental pillars of American power. Is the country working effectively politically? Is the United States economy going to rebound and grow and reinvent itself again in the future. In other words, that China's passing of the United States as the world's largest economy by 2028 is currently projected, and GDP measured market exchange rates, will that happen? Or will the American economic recovery push that further to the right until China's own date with demographic destiny begins to unfold? That is the ageing of its workforce, Mm -hmm. ageing of its population, and the usual overhang of the burdens of retirement income and support for aged care, et cetera. As I said, the first and most important thing about a US-China strategy is to have one. And with the Trump administration, they didn't. They had a bunch of sound bites. But the good news from an American point of view is the people there at the moment are seriously bright folks. And they actually understand in minutiae every element of our discussion that we've been having today, and some. These are a formidable bunch of folks in NSC, in state, in Pentagon, elsewhere, in Yellen's office, in the Treasury, as well as those who are now responsible for Samantha Power heading off to head USAID and all the rest of them. These are really top-notch folks. So I think they have the capacity to pull this off, and history will be the judge, but whether they succeeded in doing so.
1: Prime Minister Rudd, I'm going to end it there. Thank you so much for your time.
0: Good to be with you, Ravi, and happy to help them with this discussion and what is the central agenda question for our decade ahead, what I call the decade of living dangerously.
1: Let's hope it's not too dangerous. Exactly. My thanks to Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister of Australia and President and CEO of the Asia Society. Thanks for listening to Global Reboot. I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. Our podcast is a partnership between Foreign Policy and the Doha Forum. Our production staff includes Rosie Julin, Rob Sachs, Dan Efron, Darcy Polder, and Zamone Perez. Next time on the podcast, I'm joined by scholars Irshad Manji and Shadi Hamid to discuss how to prevent Islamophobia around the world. But when people begin to develop relationships across divides, that is when the love begins to emerge and the trust begins to develop. I've said before that I think America today is the best place to be a Muslim in large part because Muslims don't have to worry about being persecuted by the state if they have unorthodox views that they can be Muslim in their own way. That's next week on Global Reboot.